This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. I have to say that if anyone's been listening to this show for quite some time, and we hope that lots of you have been, you would have no doubt guessed what we would likely start today's program with. To quote from The Guardian, During a pandemic that has seen more than 70,000 deaths in the U.S., almost a quarter of the global amount, there is probably no worse song the president could walk out to than Live and Let Die, a cover by the rock band Guns N' Roses. But these are strange times. And so as Donald Trump walked around the N95 mask manufacturing plant in Phoenix, Arizona, that's exactly what happened. The president was, of course, not wearing a mask. He never does, even when standing next to a bin full of hundreds of masks in a mask manufacturing factory. He still managed not to wear one. And so, watching a clip of Trump being told how the mask works to prevent the spread of the deadly virus, it's hard not to imagine he's off somewhere in his head thinking about what he's going to have for dinner. That's great, that's great, said Trump, as Honeywell employees describe how the mask traps air particles. How many do you make a day, Ryan, he asks, breathing all over the bin full of masks. And then comes this movie moment, as if to let us know what's been going on inside Trump's head all this time, the song begins to blast. Yes, there are some who think that Trump may have found his 2020 election slogan. Then, noted the Guardian article by Poppy Noor, theories began circulating about the person who decided to play that song at that moment. Some thought it was Trump's idea. The Guardian notes they were as yet unable to find out whether the soundtrack for the Honeywell visit was approved by the plant or for that matter, Paul McCartney, or for that matter, Guns N' Roses. The Guardian was redirected to the White House after contacting Honeywell for comment. Meanwhile, Guns N' Roses representatives have yet to respond. Trump, of course, tweeted out his own video of the visit without the metaphorical music. So we kind of think it wasn't his idea, and god dang it, Whichever Honeywell employee decided to put that in over the PA system is a guy we want to congratulate. And Mr. McMillan suggests if they do find him and fire him, he should put together a GoFundMe page, which I think we should lavishly support. And where do we stand in this pandemic, which we think we should start referring to as the Trump pandemic? Because... In all fairness, wouldn't the President of the United States be the number one guy to step in 
particularly since the U.S. is the world's number one country in terms of cases and deaths. As we stand before the microphones today, the United States case total is 1.3 million. Just 63 days before that, the USA case total stood at 159. Our first death, of course, occurred in late January, and here in the first week of May, we've seen more people lose their life, let's say about three and a half months, to the entire total loss during the 15-plus years of the Vietnam War. In fact, you, if you throw in the total deaths from Afghanistan and Iraq and various other brush fire wars the last uh, couple decades, we're still past that. And yet, here's what Reuters was reporting yesterday. The White House Coronavirus Task Force will wind down as the country moves into a second phase that focuses on the aftermath of the outbreak, President Donald Trump said Tuesday. Trump confirmed the plans after Vice President Mike Pence, who leads the group, told reporters the White House may start moving coordination of the U.S. response on to federal agencies in late May. Mike Pence and the task force have done a great job, Trump said during a visit to a mask factory in Arizona, but we're now looking at a little bit different form, and that form is safety and opening, and we'll have a different group probably set up for that. Trump said Anthony Fauci and Deborah Bricks, doctors who assumed a high profile during weeks of nationally televised news briefings, would remain advisors after the group is dismantled. Asked if he was proclaiming mission accomplished in a fight against the coronavirus, Trump said, no, not at all. The mission accomplished is when it's over. True enough, as Yogi Berra once famously said, it ain't over till it's over. And we should note at this point that we are in agreement that there has to be some loosening of restrictions, some sensible loosening of restrictions. We talked about that on last week's program. Our guest at that time, William Stormer, who runs a couple of Ace Hardwares in Stockton, California, was um, very much in favor of loosening restrictions. We are not in complete agreement with him on that, but we understand the perspective and are in partial agreement. But back to the Reuters piece. Earlier Tuesday, Pence said Trump was starting to look at Memorial Day on May 25th as a time to shift management of the response to the pandemic. Pence said the trend lines for infection in the U.S. are on a positive course and that the country could be in a very different place by late May or early June. To that, we would cite a meme posted by our Australian correspondent showing a wooden frame building completely surrounded by flames towering about 50 feet up in the sky, to which the caption was added, The fire has reached its peak. It is no longer growing. The acceleration curve has flattened. So everybody back into the building. It's all safe to return. Yeah, Reuters notes the White House task force has been less visible in recent days as Trump turned his attention to efforts to reopen the U.S. economy. Of course, we have to note here at Radio Parallax that the White House task force failing to convene for a few days probably didn't make a great deal of difference one way or the other. So let's talk about opening the country up again for a few minutes. And I do want to interject at this moment that I have seldom in uh, 20 years of doing this show been more shocked to see how many people out there are buying into a narrative that, let's say, does not seem to be supported by the best evidence. 
Yeah, back in 2003, we were pretty dismayed to see the number of people accepting the possibility that a war in Iraq was necessary because Saddam Hussein possessed weapons of mass destruction, which, of course, we knew was a lie. And anyone who was following that story very closely knew was a lie. But I have to confess to being stunned, and stunned is the word, stunned by what doctors and nurses that I know have been posting online about some of this. One video in particular just sort of blew my mind. It is alleged to be from a researcher whose research into AIDS was critical in, in, in discovering how the disease needed to be treated, who allegedly published a paper explaining why, well, they don't actually explain in the video what it was she published, but they claimed it was so hot that the authorities cracked down on her and arrested her without charge and prevented her from speaking out. Turns out she's a noted anti-vaxxer who makes the claim during the video that pretty much everything we're doing is wrong. Now, I do note that Everything You Know Is Wrong was a pretty good album by the Firesign Theater, but in this case, it made a pretty bad 25-minute documentary. If we have some time, I'll have more to say about that before this hour is up. But holy mackerel, the things that are being said. Capital Public Radio, to their credit, published a piece based on some fact-checking of what Representative Tom McClintock had to say recently, which was that the flu killed 80,000 Americans last year. Well, it turned out that the 2017-2018 influenza season was a bad one. The CDC now estimates that 61,000 people died during that year. Now, they initially did report 80,000, which is the figure McClintock's throwing around, but that wasn't last year, and it's no longer believed to be 80,000. Last year, the CDC reported 34,000 deaths for an entire year. Let us note that we have now doubled that total in just two months. Yesterday, at day 63, if you're counting day one as when we hit 159, which many people do, between 100 and 200 is where, where many people start the charts. That was on March 5th, making yesterday day 63. Well, we were at half that number at day 42. Three weeks to double. Now, that is a lot better than we were doing before that. We were doubling as rapidly as every two days at several points. But unless you, dear listener, can give me some explanation of why we should expect that number to decelerate, I think it's fair to say that in three to four weeks, we will double again. Our death rate is running over 4%. We can therefore, I think, fairly safely extrapolate that over the next three to four weeks, we can expect another 50,000 deaths. And that, of course, is assuming that it does not, in fact, accelerate as we relax social distancing. I I think it's fair to guesstimate that um, a month from now, the COVID-19 total will exceed that of what the U.S. lost in World War I, our third bloodiest conflict. So we do have to take our hat off to Capital Public Radio for correcting what Tom McClintock had to say, although I did laugh that someone noted that, well, he got the total wrong and the year wrong, and it's being claimed that it's mostly false. Well, we're not going to quibble. A lot of folks are looking at Sweden as an example we might follow. Sweden was much less aggressive in social distancing than many of its neighboring Scandinavian countries and the U.S., well, at least many jurisdictions in the U.S., We're writing about this in 
the UK, the Spectator, said it's too early to tell whether Sweden's gamble paid off. On the evidence so far, you could argue either way. Sweden has suffered 233 COVID-19 deaths per million, far more than Nordic nations with lockdowns. Denmark has seen 75, Norway 38, Finland 35. So when you look at the fact that Denmark has had one-third the number of casualties with a six times denser population, you'd say, well, maybe Sweden wasn't, wasn't such a success. On the other hand, it is doing better than other countries in Europe. The UK has registered 311 deaths per million and Spain 510. Some epidemiologists believe that most countries will ultimately end up with similar death rates after multiple waves of the disease wash through and herd immunity slowly builds up. Yeah, the Germans were being hailed as a great uh, success in Europe, but their death rate is now finally about the same as it is here in the United States, about 4%. Antibody testing may reduce that number somewhat, but we'll defer that discussion till later. The Week magazine reports uh, under the headline, Easing Restrictions in Republican-Run States, the following... Georgia Governor Brian Kemp ordered the most expansive reopening, allowing barbershops, gyms, tattoo parlors, nail salons, restaurants, and theaters to open with restrictions on the number of patrons. In Texas, Governor Greg Abbott ended stay-at-home orders and announced that retail stores, restaurants, theaters, and malls can open on Friday at 25% capacity. These reopenings in Florida, Mississippi, Colorado, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Missouri, and other states prompted alarms from health officials and some mayors who say it's too soon and will reverse gains made by these six weeks of social distancing. Said Columbia University epidemiologist Jeffrey Shaman, it's not a matter of whether infections will increase, but how much. As many Republican-led states eased restrictions, Democratic governors in New York, Virginia, New Mexico, and other states extended stay-at-home orders into May or gave notice they would. The result? A patchwork of conflicting regulations and admonitions that left business owners debating whether to open and employees and customers wondering if it was safe to return. Mixed signals from the White House added to the confusion. President Trump said Georgia was moving too fast, an abrupt reversal of his previous criticism of stay-at-home orders. He then praised Governor Abbott's opening of Texas, encouraging all governors to reopen schools soon. Vice President Mike Pence predicted the epidemic will be largely behind us, quote-unquote, by Memorial Day. That prediction was quickly contradicted by White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator Dr. Deborah Burks. She said social distancing will be with us through the summer. And I again have to pause at this point and just remark with some incredulity, the things friends that I've known for many years are saying about this. One longtime friend pointed out that he didn't want his kids to grow up in an apocalyptic world destroyed because we'd crashed the economy by shutting things down. I, I wrote back and said, you know, this is more like a matter of, of, of choosing which apocalypse you'd like to see. To that very point, Aaron Carroll, writing in the New York Times, said, We're being offered a false choice between saving lives or saving the economy. Businesses won't survive without customers, and polls show about 80% of Americans aren't ready to venture out. To create confidence, we need 5 to 10 times the number of tests a day we're now administering to identify who's infected and who's not, and to build a workforce to conduct contact tracing and isolation. That's how we save the economy. Let's talk about both of those for a moment. One of the main reasons that the Asian countries like Taiwan, Singapore, South Korea were so successful in their battling COVID-19 
was that they were set up to do contact tracing and to isolate people exposed to the virus. They did this very well. Here in the U.S., however, we were caught completely flat-footed. Writing in the East Bay Times this week, Lisa Krieger and Jack Lee note that California's counties are building an army of 20,000 contact tracers to find everyone who is unknowingly infected by the COVID-19 virus, preventing the ignition of deadly new clusters of disease. The recruits, deployed civil servants and volunteers across the state, will be trained as disease detectives serving six to 12 month long gigs. The article notes that track, trace, and test has long been part of the toolkit of local health departments in California. By identifying and isolating close contacts of infected individuals, officials have been able to stop the spread of diseases such as measles and tuberculosis. But in the early days of the pandemic, they lacked the manpower to catch every case, especially in Santa Clara County, which was hit early and hard. Said Dr. Nicholas Moss, acting director of Alameda County's Public Health Department, contact tracing is a foundation of public health work. I want to note by way of aside that Sacramento County has been cited as uh, being particularly light hit in this epidemic. When I looked at the actual numbers county to county, I did not see evidence to support that. Kern County, for example, with 900,000 residents versus Sacramento's 1.5 million, has just under 1,000 cases, whereas Sacramento has 1,100. So, yeah, it's doing better than Kern County. And it's doing better than Alameda County, where this show is currently being produced. Alameda County's got 1.7 million versus Sacramento's 1.6, and yet has 1,700 cases versus 1,100. So, yeah, it's better in Sacramento. But I have to note, I received a, a correspondence from my old neighbor, in East Sacramento yesterday saying, be glad you moved. They're holding parties in the front yards in the neighborhood. With social distancing, I inquired, well, some yes, some no. I gather that at least some of them are a form of protest, like all those people up on the Capitol steps. More to say about that shortly. But what about antibody tests? A couple days after recording our last program, wherein I expressed some doubt that these tests could be accurate based on the fact that they clash with other data, there's this from the East Bay Times. Under the headline, Are Antibody Tests Reliable? The subheadline notes that many flooding the market have little federal oversight and may give a false sense of security. And in fact, I think I need to read just directly from this one a little bit. Article by Lisa Krieger notes that before COVID-19, the nutritionists and dietitians at Lafayette's Cumbiati Wellness Programs focused largely on helping women lose weight and gain energy through diet, vitamins, herbs, and cooking classes. Now they're selling $300 antibody blood tests, a tool designed to detect whether someone was infected in the past by the respiratory virus that has killed nearly a quarter of a million worldwide. They quote Rebecca Walker, a nutritionist with a degree in business administration, saying if people are feeling a lot of anxiety, it makes them feel better. It's about peace of mind. The article notes the test is among dozens flooding the consumer market in the wake of newly loosened U.S. Food and Drug Administration restrictions to boost access to the tool. But are they accurate? And if they are, do they promise us a false sense of security? The piece notes that the alluring premise of these tests is that antibodies provide ongoing immunity so people who have them can return to normal life without fear of sickness or sickening others. But as we noted on this program, and they note in the article, research is currently underway to discover if the antibodies actually fend off infection, for how long, and what concentration is needed. 
In many diseases like measles, antibodies provide lifelong immunity, but in others, it can be short-lived. Skipping ahead in the article, in the early days of the pandemic, the FDA was criticized for failing to provide enough tests to detect viral infections. So it has taken a very different approach to antibody testing with lighter regulations. Commercial manufacturers can sell the tests after validating the results themselves. They must simply notify the agency and not make claims about federal approval. Although manufacturers assert their tests have high sensitivity and high specificity, the data has not been independently verified. Combiati Wellness programs would not disclose the manufacturer or processor of its tests, saying that's proprietary information. The same article notes that according to the CDC, as many as 25% who get the virus remain mostly or entirely asymptomatic. That is, that is consistent with the studies done on the uh, cruise ships and in Asia and I think in one European study. And there's no doubt about the fact that a lot of people who felt sick in January or February are now questioning whether they might have had COVID, which I suppose we will eventually know. A guest I was hoping to bring on this program for today's show is a neighbor of mine. He reported to me the day after we recorded last week's program that he had it. I asked him if he tested positive, and my understanding was he answered in the affirmative. He described it as like an elephant on his chest, reminding him of the pneumonia he had as a child. But after two weeks, he recovered, and that was about a dozen days before I spoke to him. I went back a couple days later to enlist him as an interviewee to find that they had just called 911, and he'd been taken off to the local hospital, suffering from some neurologic deficits that appeared to have perhaps been a stroke. His housemate informed me that he apparently had not received a viral swab test previously, so I don't know where this stands, and I guess it shows what a mess we are still in, in the midst of testing and non-testing. Sounding off on this at statnews.com, Andrew Joseph said, not until antibody studies are more reliable can we, with confidence, reduce restrictions on people. He notes that neither the New York City nor California samplings done on antibody tests were truly randomized and may have tested people more likely to have been exposed than the general population. Antibody tests have also been plagued by high rates of false negatives and false positives. The FDA, it notes, let more than 120 antibody tests hit the market without proof of accuracy. Sounding off on this New Scientist magazine notes that serious issues with antibody testing means we need to be very careful about how we use them. Key factor, it notes that it's not yet clear what role antibodies play in immunity to coronavirus. On the 24th of April, the WHO released a statement saying, no study has yet evaluated whether the presence of antibodies to the virus confirms immunity to subsequent infection. And the article, again, points out that When only a tiny percentage of a population has been infected, false positives can lead antibody testing to wildly overestimate the number of people who have encountered the virus, which is especially bad in this case because these studies are being cited by some anyway to note that, well, everybody has this disease anyway. We're well on our way toward herd immunity. Let's just turn people loose. We should note in a sidebar that Fox News President Jay Wallace has sent a memo to network anchors who are cheering on these anti-lockdown protests in several states, urging them to remind protesters to practice social distancing. Fox is, of course, heavily covering the protests, often showing demonstrators without masks, huddled together, talking and shouting slogans. And I can't resist the further sidebar, which we could probably insert anywhere into this program, 
that notes that during the 13 hours in which President Trump spoke in the past three weeks in his daily briefings on the COVID-19 pandemic, he's devoted two hours to attacks, 45 minutes to praising himself and his administration, and 4.5 minutes to offering condolences to the families of the tens of thousands who have died. In one-third of his answers to questions, Trump attacked someone, including state governors, President Obama, and the press itself. Yeah, sad to note, I've got some Trump supporter friends who are just angry, really angry about the fact they won't be able to go to a Major League Baseball game. And I do realize that uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has pretty much trashed the NBA and college basketball seasons, but personally, I consider that to be one of the few pluses of the pandemic. Of course, that opinion, uh, like all the ones heard in this program, reflects only me, Poncho, and perhaps my cat, Poncho. All right, we're coming up on the break here, so why don't we take a moment to pause and do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for abstinence. With the news that the incident of STDs in New York City has plunged 80% since the start of the pandemic. Said Dr. Chris Bungay of the Gotham Medical Group, that's what social distancing will do. It was, on the other hand, a bad week last week for national sacrifice with the news that Belgians were being asked to eat French fries twice a week to help shrink a 750,000-ton glut of potatoes caused by the pandemic's impact on food exports. If Belgians comply, said Agricultural Minister Hilde Kravitz, we can avoid seeing excellent food for which our farmers have worked so hard being lost. And also, according to the week, it was an ugly week last week for the Dewey Decimal System after a contractor reportedly performed a deep clean of a library in Newmarket, UK, but put the books back on the shelves in order of size, largest to smallest. Said library official James Powell, it looks like libraries will be closed for a while, so we'll have plenty of time to sort the books out. And finally, according to California's Highway Patrol, you could say that it was a Good week, or many weeks lately, given that overall traffic levels are down 35% from last year because of these stay-at-home orders. We have to balance that off with the fact that the number of speeding tickets for driving faster than 100 has increased 87%, with one motorist caught doing 165. Commissioner Warren Stanley warns that higher speeds can significantly increase the chance of death should a crash occur. And Mr. McMillan says he doesn't think we actually have to fact-check that one. And we have to note with some amazement the fact that the American Experience on PBS is going to devote two hours to the life of George W. Bush, who's experiencing something of a minor renaissance at the moment. We have to note that until President 45 came along, Bush 43 was without a doubt our least favorite president. But we do have to give him a bit of credit for coming forward currently and saying that we need to put some of this partisanship behind us in dealing with the pandemic. 
Of course, we have to note, as CNN did, that former President George W. Bush calling for an end to partisanship in the nation's continued battle against the pandemic was swiftly rejected by Donald Trump, who attacked the 43rd president for not coming to his defense during the impeachment trial. Donald Trump tweeted that during his trial, Bush was nowhere to be found. Mr. Millen speculates that maybe W. thought Trump was guilty. We do have to add by way of balance that when he was running for president, Trump accused Bush of lying about the existence of WMDs in Iraq to promote the war. So never let it be said that Radio Parallax always disagrees with Donald Trump. Final item, Bloomberg reported a couple days ago that President Trump has said that Americans need to get back to normal life even if it leads to more sickness and death. Will some people be affected, he said? Yes. Will some be affected badly? Yes. But we have to get our country open and we have to get it open soon. Let's take a break. This is Radio Parallax. Got lots more in the second half.